what's the single most special natural history encounter you've ever had? And is it Air Jaws? Or is that just the most publicized no. one? No, the, probably the most special natural history encounter I was ever lucky enough to witness was in the year 2000, we had a, a Brutus whale, spelt Brides, B-R-Y-D-E-S, uh, die in False Bay. And although it's slightly manipulated, the animal washed up on one of our local beaches. And in those days, there was a, a common thought that in order to get rid of a whale on the beach, you blew the thing up. Mm -hmm. And there'd been some horror videos coming from California where they'd used too much charge and lumps of whale squashed cars yeah. and landed on kids. So I, <laughs> I, I went and told the South African Navy, because we launched from the South African Naval Base, that listen... This is Anna Simon's town. Yes. I said, this is really not a good idea to start blowing up whales and killing kids with lumps of blubber. And why don't you tow the whale out into False Bay and let nature take its course? Because great whites, especially really adult ones, feed on whales, sure. right? And they agreed to it. And they towed the whale out to close to Seal Island. Surely it's been decaying for a little while. How do you safely tow a... Um, I, don't know if there's, I don't know if the words safe and sensible come into this <laughs> okay. equation. I, I went to the library and there was no book on towing whales, right? <laughs> So they towed this whale out to Seal Island and they said, okay, well, here's, here's, here's your whale, sir. What would you like to do? And I said, okay, well, I'm going to anchor the whale. So we took a, a spare anchor that we have on our boat uh -huh. and we anchored the whale. And over the course of the next 18 hours, we recorded no less than a minimum of 28 great whites, possibly as many as 40, virtually all adults, which is by a country mile, the largest number ever recorded in one small setting, feeding on this whale. And we put our little boat next to the whale, which was a lovely buffer mm -hmm. with a few uh, floats in between. And we had the white sharks literally touching distance, five, five and a half meter females lying next to each other, overlapping with their pectoral fins, feeding on this carcass. And it was just the most extraordinary event. We were actually filming at the time for, for Discovery Channel. And I remember, I think there were six of us on board, and every single one of us was screaming at the other one to come and see what they were seeing. <laughs> it, it was that mind-blowing. And you had these huge sharks taking like 50-pound chunks of blub out. It sounds like a giant bellow, you know, like, oof, oof. and the fat and blood and spray was coming out of their mouths. And one of the scientists who was on board who used to work on our boat with us, she was at the front of the boat and she screamed to me, come over, look with, come over, look at this. And there were two five-meter white sharks right next to each other chewing on this whale. And as the one was, the one was slowly moving towards the other one, when it got to the other one, thought it was going to bite into the whale, but bit into the other shark's head. And as it realized its mistake, it let go. And the other shark kept on biting the whale, but stuck in its head were two white shark teeth. And this scientist and, and I... Her name was Alison. The two of us were desperately trying to reach over the board to pull the teeth out of a five-meter white shark beneath us. It was just so crazy. And yeah, they ate two-thirds of a 12-meter-long whale in 18 hours. And there's never previously and never probably sadly ever will be such a collection of, of white sharks together. And that's where the white shark in, in Australia... Great whites are called white pointers, mm -hmm. and that's from the early whalers because when they 
were turned upside down. They exposed those incredible snow white um, bellies of theirs. Mm -hmm. That's where the name came from. And yeah, it was incredible. It was the first time that we'd ever seen so many big adults together. And from the footage, we saw males being aroused for the first time. And it made perfect sense because generally white sharks don't move together in large aggregations. Yeah, yeah, you know, they're relatively, but there's no better, hierarchical, aren't they? Yeah, they, they keep out of the way of bigger exactly. ones. Exactly. But there's no better time to become amorous than an all-you-can-eat buffet. She's uh, busy stuffing her face. <laughs> I'll get around the back. Exactly. And um, <laughs> so that, that was that was that was just a, an incredible experience. And then over the the quarter odd century that we worked with them at Sea Island, we recorded just under ten and a half thousand predatory events. And some of those predatory events were, were monumental, you know, young of the year seals having four different white sharks have a go at them with the sharks leaping 10 foot in the air and this young seal remaining composed and outmaneuvering and outlasting one shark and then it, the next one's after it. And so this, this cat and mouse part of death would, would evolve and this little seal would get closer to the island. And by that stage, you're praying for that seal to get there. And sometimes they did, and sometimes they didn't. And yeah, it was emotional. And you never, I never grew accustomed to death. Sure. You know, I always respected predator, and I always respected prey, and I always respected the outcome. And that's probably the greatest lesson I ever learned was to just, just watch and observe and respect. So there you go. See you all next week. No, where to begin? Right. My name is David Oakes and welcome back to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. Whether rubbing trunks to record tree bark or feeding whales to a great white shark, I get to speak to those people who are dedicated to or inspired by the natural world. This week, I continue my series of interviews recorded down in Southern Africa, and today I am in Cape Town talking to a wildlife photographer, conservationist, and shark expert. You've already heard a little from Chris, so you know what you're in for, but for clarity's sake, Chris Fallows, as well as having taken arguably the single greatest photo a human has ever taken of a great white shark, honestly has contributed to the prolific output of the BBC Natural History Unit, most notably upon Blue Planet and Planet Earth, has presented the award-nominated Air Jaws series for the Discovery Channel for over two decades, sorry Chris, and has contributed to 18 peer-reviewed scientific papers and counting. And it's not just sharks. When not in the water, he's out in the bush, raising awareness about habitat loss and species decline. So... Without further ado, this is Trees A Crowd, and this is more of Chris Fallows. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy, her mantle threw, when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. You're not originally from Cape Town, are you? This isn't home home. You've settled here and this has sort of become your base of operations. But where did you start originally in life? Where did you grow up? So I was born in Johannesburg. I was very lucky to have parents that had an interest in the national parks. So I used to go to the Kruger National Park as a young boy on most weekends and all holidays. So I got a huge interest in, in wildlife from there. In fact, my, my earliest recollection in life has been chased up a, 
a tree by a bunch of warthogs that no doubt I, I'd probably teased. <laughs> yeah, so the, the, the love of, of wildlife came from living in, on the high felt. All these parks were within stone's throw of Joburg. And then um, developed this tremendous passion for animals. And I was also lucky enough to go to most of the parks in southern Africa with my dad. And what did mom, he do? Was he a photographer? or? Like... He was a very keen amateur wildlife okay. photographer. He used to sell electrical goods, and a lot of the mines that he used to supply were on the edges of, of national parks. Sure. As a byproduct, he used to take me with, and uh, yeah, then after work, we'd go into the parks, and the passion for, for wildlife came from being exposed to it, you know, and I was incredibly privileged and lucky to have that opportunity. Is it a normal kind of childhood? Are city dwellers city dwellers in Africa? Are country dwellers country people? Like, how defined is it? How normal a childhood was yours? I think it was pretty different in so much as in those days, yes, there was a component of the white population that was living in wild areas, but by far and away, the bulk of the white population in South Africa was centered around cities, whereas a lot of the black population was typically more rural in nature, so they had more natural exposure to wildlife. So the inclination was probably greater sadly based on racial lines, to be more familiar with wildlife and probably have a, a greater disposition to trying to keep natural areas intact. So my my childhood was quite different in that, you know, I, I was taken out of the cities and taken into the bush. And that certainly wasn't the norm. I mean, my friends weren't doing that from the age of, of one and a half and two. They would be going to the coast on holidays and we would go to the bush. It was pretty different. But I think virtually every South African or Southern African or East African has had exposure to wildlife. And when you have exposure to wildlife and open spaces and the beauty that our continent has to offer, Africa touches you very deeply. You can leave Africa, but your heart never leaves Africa. South Africa is fraught with problems. We all know that. But would I go anywhere else? On this planet? No, I can't leave Africa. We've spoken, my, my wife and I, we've spoken about it so many times. It's, it's such a special place. Once it gets in your heart, once the roar of the lion, you know, penetrates your soul, the smell of the first earth, rains touch the earth of Africa, watching a great herd of animals migrating across an open, undulating landscape. Wow, it's hard to beat that. We've already touched on race, so here's a big question for you. Do you think the environmental movement got stronger after apartheid or weaker? That's a, a very interesting question that I've never really thought of. They're... It's a big one for question number two in an interview. I apologize. <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs> it, is a, it is a big one. Um, the landscape changed in so much as in the old days, the wildlife areas were primarily conserved for the benefit of compared to the rest of the population of South Africa, a relatively small population. The benefits of that wildlife accrued to the white population. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that that has changed today. I mean, you're seeing more and more people of color enjoying the national parks. We all as South Africans now hopefully take ownership and pride in our national parks and protected spaces. But I think there's also been a lot more exploitation of wildlife by our government in so much as the paradigm has shifted in that when apartheid fell, suddenly there was a, a need to create new opportunities and new jobs. 
And so we started creating more extractive processes. And if I look at the sea, we started creating fisheries like demersal shark longlining, octopus fishing, octopus longlining, and, and a whole lot of other fisheries that had no environmental impact assessment done on them. And it was essentially to create new jobs for the blue economy. So they had a devastating effect on our, our environment, you know, and that was forced by political circumstance. I think in that respect, certainly from the ocean's point of view, it's, it's been devastating. You know, I think the African continent as a whole, you need to look at each subregion very differently. I mean, Kenya and Tanzania decided many, many years ago to leave their borders unfenced and leave their huge environmental tracts of land open to allow you know, cross-border migration of species. Mm -hmm. And that's paid unbelievable dividends for, for those countries, you know. Botswana had a very progressive president and, and regime for a long time with regards to wildlife. And they followed a, a completely different model where it was low volume tourism, but very high end. And that paid huge dividends for them. So, you know, I think each country's political paradigm is very different to the next. And... Certainly in the case of South Africa, you know, I think it's had very mixed fortunes. Yes, we still have significant uh, tracts of land designated for conservation. But then you look at the tremendous amount of rhino poaching we have in this country that's linked right to the top echelons of government. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, there's a lot of gray areas with regards to answering that question. Are there political parties coming through now with a very front-footed green agenda? Or is that still something with such social inequality and general cost of living crises, is that still something that goes down the list of importance? Because there, there was a political lockdown last week on Monday, a far left-leaning group tried to get a public revolt going. Whether or not you support that or not, I I'd never heard any mention of a green agenda. It was purely about um, uh, social, human equality. Yeah, and that, that's exactly what it is. I think by virtue of our sordid and torrid background, there are other issues that are more pressing for most South Africans. Okay. Putting food on the table, education, creating jobs. But the reality is probably the thing, single thing that makes Africa special compared to other continents is our wildlife and our natural spaces. So if we don't put energy and effort into that, ultimately we lose the very essence not only of our continent, but the very reason why any tourist would ever come and spend time and money here, because as much as I hate to say this, if you look at Europe or you look at the East, for example, the depth of cultural attraction to go visit those countries is far greater than what we have in Africa. And there are many beautiful places on this planet. I've been lucky enough to see many of them. But there's nowhere else on this planet that has the same amount of charismatic megafauna as Africa. So it's vital for our well-being to look after these incredible animals that call Africa home, if we're wanting to be able to pick the low-hanging fruits of tourism. And I think also just for the ecological state of our continent, the processes that revolve around intact ecosystems and the benefits they have to people, conservation and wildlife and preservation of open spaces should be right at the, up at the very top of priorities for any government on our continent going forward. And those that conserve their wildlife, I believe in years to come, will be the ones that really stand out above the rest mm -hmm. as you know, attractive areas of investment and, and obviously from a tourism point of view will be the strongest. 
So what brought you to Cape Town? How old were you when you moved down here? So I was 13 when we came to Cape Town. My mom never particularly liked Johannesburg. Uh, she liked the sea. And my folks moved to Cape Town then. Sadly, shortly afterwards, they split up. But yeah, when I was 13, moved to Cape Town and suddenly from uh, spending a life going into the bush, I was bunking school and going surfing and hanging out with mates at the beach all the time. And very quickly, you know, became very passionate about the ocean and its creatures. And I was diving a lot, fishing a lot. And hell, in those days, False Bay was notorious as the breeding ground of the great white shark, the biggest population in the world. And who wouldn't want to see those creatures that just previously Jaws had made famous? You know, there were there were monsters in our bay and every boy wants this little boy or little girl wants to meet a monster or see a dinosaur. I've got you on the record as saying that they're the last creature on the planet that can catch, kill, bite us in half and consume us. Yeah, that's um, true. How would you describe them in a more positive light? Saying that they're the last creature that can catch, kill, bite in half and consume us, in some ways pays homage to them. So I don't see it as being completely negative. I kind of look at, at that as, as making them unique as an apex predator. In terms of a more gentler way of appreciating them, I'd say having spent nearly three and a half thousand days on the ocean with them in South Africa and abroad, we got to know their personalities incredibly well. And we got to know them just like whole group of people in a, in a room there were some that were you know really assertive and dominant but contrastingly there were those that were shy there were those that were goofy there were those that wanted to have nothing to do with us and I think you know what we also did realize very quickly you know I was most of the time I was out of a cage with the great whites I, I hated being in a cage mm -hmm. and I realized that these animals actually paid me very little interest. When we were doing all the documentaries, the documentary crews, obviously, you know, it's, it's television. They wanted me to get close to the animals and, you know, interact with them. And on most occasions, the sharks didn't want to come close to me. And I had to earn their respect and I had to earn their trust. And there's a gentler side to great whites. That's, that's for sure, you know. And I think that was one of the most beautiful things for me is through my evolution as a fine art photographer is that, in the early days, it was all about creating these incredibly impactful images of these mm. flying sharks. But over time, I tried to create images that showed them for the other 99% of their life when they weren't flying 15 foot through the air. And that was conserving energy in a beautiful environment. And you had this predator that, as a guest once said to me, didn't move with the ocean, but the ocean moved with the great white. And yeah, it's for me now to actually be sometimes on my own or just with a friend free diving with them sitting on the bottom of the ocean watching a great white cruising past me is I think people find it a bit crazy and a bit strange to say but I find it a very relaxing and beautiful experience. It sort of leads on to a question I was going to ask you later um, one of the things you said with your photography certainly out in the plains you say I like to work at eye level to create a feeling of being with my subject rather than dominion over it and yet the photos that made you famous were very much you looking from beneath as these mighty creatures leapt meters out of the sea. Yeah. And so it's sort of from where your career as a photographer started to where it is now, you've certainly moved away from that sort of deliberate spectacle creation view of what these creatures are and what they do. Absolutely. You know, you, you hope you evolve in life and whether I have or haven't, you know, who knows. But <laughs> do you I, think you've evolved in life? You know what? I've always loved animals and I've always felt incredibly strongly about them. I've always wanted to conserve them and I've 
yeah, I've always felt a deep affinity for them. And that, that hasn't changed. I'd say, if anything, I've become more passionate. But yeah, from a photographic point of view, in the early days, bearing in mind I was lucky enough to be the first person to photograph flying great white sharks when we discovered them at Seal Island, it was hard not to take an impact photo of a flying great white <laughs> shark. I mean, you know, there's no other animal on the planet that has an entire week of shows to it, like on Discovery Channel Shark Week or the month-long shark fest for National Geographic. We're fascinated by great white sharks. There's probably no other creature on the planet that holds our attention, whether we love them, hate them, fear them, more than a great white. And now suddenly you had flying great whites. I mean, I took it to a stratospheric level of cool in those days. And it was amazing to take those photographs of, you know, great whites hunting. But I also realized it was a small part of their lives. And in terms of my overall portfolio, I always try to focus on generally natural things. So yes, I photographed them hunting seals because that's what predators do. But I also paid homage to the fact that for the bulk of their lives, they just conserving energy. And I, I really tried to, to try and create a balance. And what I also try to do was with any form of wildlife is, as you quite correctly said, is I try to consider it having exactly the same right to live on this planet as I do. And I don't ever look down or have, think of having dominion over an animal. And if anything, I do look up to them. So when I'm photographing terrestrial animals, I'm usually on the ground. I'm usually, you know, trying to create eye contact and put them in a position where, you know, we look at them as equals and, are, and really admire them as iconic creatures they are. So... Yeah, it's, it's, it's an evolution, and gosh knows, I don't know what the next chapter holds, but um, <laughs> it's a fun journey. What's the most interesting thing you've seen a shark do? Because I know when it comes to, say, manta rays, for example, no one's ever seen a manta ray give birth in the wild. Yeah. And you say that you've seen sharks attack because they're predators, mm -hmm. and you've seen them conserve energy prior to the attack. But like, there's, there's aspects of the life that you won't necessarily have seen. Like, you've spent more time with great whites than most people certainly um i don't know what percentage of that sort of top echelon of great white people you are but like what's the strangest thing that you've observed a great white do probably the strangest thing i've i've seen them do that would go against the grain is turn down a very easy preying opportunity i've watched them on multiple occasions over the years where there's been an injured seal where a white shark will just circle the animal and eventually leave it I think that that was really interesting because you know the common perception certainly in the early days was these were mindless killing machines so if you if there was an opportunity they were opportunistic and they were going to just rush in and, and take any chance mm -hmm. they got but what i realized pretty early on was that they're very calculating and they balance up risk against reward and if something is not doing what it normally does they're very cautious about it so how intelligent do you think they are i think they're incredibly intelligent in terms of the processes by which they hunt. So the evolutionary process that's created the great white is remarkable in terms of its ability to locate its prey, its ability to then track it down and using incredible speed and power to catch its prey. If we perceive intelligence through uh, the evolution of those processes, then I think they're remarkably intelligent. If you look at intelligence from a cognitive decision-making point of view, whereby if you've thrown a curveball, how do you react to it? Then I would say, you know, they, they're relatively unintelligent in terms of being able to quickly 
change to uh, a changing situation. Like orcas will immediately react and do something different if the prey does something out of the ordinary, whereas Mm -hmm. a a white shark is an extinction hunter. Prey moves in a certain way. Sound is there. The vibration is there. The cues are there. They'll do a certain, follow a certain step of processes to catch that prey. So coming back to your original question about the strangest thing, I think when an animal does something completely different, rather than being aggressive, it's cautious. Mm-hmm. So those, that's, those seals that have already been injured by potentially another shark, the white sharks don't just rush in and catch them because it's not behaving in a normal way and they're cautious rather than, than assertive. Do you think that's why sharks have survived in our seas for as long as they have? I mean, they've got 50 million years of evolution. Yeah, look, them. I mean, sharks have been around for 400 million years. So they've outlived the dinosaurs. They were there before the dinosaurs, after the dinosaurs, and they're still going strong. And there are 500 species of sharks, and each shark, each species fills its own niche in the ocean. So they, they're unbelievably successful. I think they've survived for so long because there are so many different types of them. Over time, they morph into the changes that have occurred on our planet. So I think they're incredibly capable animals. They're very successful animals. They've got a huge variety of different differing strategies and obviously by having a, a greater bouquet of options you give yourself a better chance when one or two of the options runs out. When did you first see a great white? I saw my very first great white as a 11 year old boy and I was actually body surf, bodyboarding at Musenberg in the approaching wave, which was still about 50, 60 meters away, there was a great white shark swimming in the wave. And at the time, we used to have what was known as the John Rolfe rescue helicopter. And they were hovering over the shark, waving to me to get out the water. <laughs> yeah, I was desperately waiting for the next wave to catch it in. But the shark didn't even change its course. It didn't even come close to me. It didn't look at me. And that was also a bit of a turning point in my life because at that stage, every headline you read in Cape Town was Great White Plague, uh, Sharks Hunt Bathers, which was a complete load of hogwash. And it was my first experience to this animal that could easily have caught me if it wanted to, but actually really wasn't that interested. It was almost a a little bit deflating, if anything. (laughs) (laughs) What's wrong with me? We'll get on to why there are no Great Whites in South Africa at the moment. In a, in, a, in a sec but like has that message changed has the have the government stopped sort of saying that beware of sharks in the seas yeah it wasn't so much i guess it wasn't so much governments if i did say that it was the press at the time i mean nothing okay. sells a newspaper more than than a shark attack and creating fear i mean that's we all know that's what sells there has been an unbelievable shift a huge amount of documentaries a lot of conservationists, a lot of scientists. There are a huge amount of people that have, have made great efforts to change the way we see these animals. And I think, yes, there will always be those that believe we should cull them and the, the catch and kill mentality and the only good predator is a dead predator. But I think we've evolved hugely in the last 30 odd years towards living with rather than killing everything on our planet. And I hope that that mindset continues to evolve for generations to come. So when you were a teenager, as well as <clears throat> surfing, you were also tagging, catching, releasing sharks that were caught in fishing nets? When I was 17 years old, the, the local fisherman who down here at Musenberg, Musenberg Beach, a, a beautiful coastal beach on the, the northern shores of False Bay, they would encircle shoals of fish and as a bycatch would catch these sharks. And at the time, 
because of the bad press sharks were getting, all the bathers on the beach were saying, well, you've got to kill those sharks. And I managed to convince them to let me tag these sharks, release them, and then let's at least see where they go and see if they are hanging around, lurking around, waiting for the next person to dip their toes into the water, which of course they weren't. And I started a project with these guys when I was 17. How does a 17-year-old learn how to tag fish? Oh, it's pretty easy, the tagging component. The, the difficult component is convincing, is, the, fishermen is convincing the fishermen to let the sharks go. But um, there wasn't a huge amount of value in the sharks at that particular okay. time. So they were. I think they indulged me because they were probably waiting for me to get bitten. I was probably more of a curiosity than anything else. But I developed a, an amazing relationship with these guys. You know, they came from very disadvantaged backgrounds. It was in the days of, of apartheid. So Pierre was a little blonde-haired white boy sitting in the back of the, the vehicle with the whole lot of people of color, um, with them all smoking joints and me there with my little tagging kit. And I probably learned more from those guys in terms of how to look at an ocean and interpret what's in that ocean than from any textbook or teacher or scientist or anybody else I came across in my life. And I developed friendships with them. And Are you still in touch with some of them now or have they all moved on? Or? Yeah. I mean, when I walk down to the beach now, we still see each other and we all chat and we have a laugh. A lot of them have sadly moved on. Sure. They live a very hard life. But it gave me exposure to understanding the different pressures people face and understanding why people do certain things in the ocean that I don't necessarily agree with. But it gave me unbelievable exposure to seeing these animals firsthand, removing them from the nets. And we often had audiences of hundreds and hundreds of people. So people saw you taking out these sharks that they were sure were going to devour you. Then putting a tag in, they would always be keen to learn why you're tagging them and then saw you putting them back into the water and this beautiful animal swimming off. We're talking great white thresher. Yeah, more bronze whalers, thresher sharks, raggedtooths, hammerheads, super and smooth hounds. We didn't catch many great whites, but we did catch one very special one that I'll chat about shortly. But it gave me a first-hand opportunity to do good. And over the years, we released probably in excess of I don't know, maybe 15,000 sharks and rays. And I tagged several thousand of them at the end of the day. It was an amazing journey. Did you ever see any of those tagged sharks later on in your career? Yeah, so different species live for different lengths of time. I mean, if you look at the Greenland shark, it's the oldest Mm. living creature on the planet at well over 400 years. But a lot of the sharks I was tagging would live for about 20 to 30 years. And many of them were recaptured. And some species went great distances up our coastline. And then certain species of, of smaller sharks, for example, stayed within a couple of kilometers of where I tagged them. So we learned a, a massive amount from that. And yeah, it was so exciting. You know, as a, once again, when I should have been at school, <laughs> I was down at the beach and I was with the fishermen and we, I was watching how different winds had different effects on the ocean, which in turn attracted different species. And then every time that net came in, you'd hope to see a big splash at the back of the net and know there was a shark there. And then you'd go into the net and wrestle the shark out. I mean, I was 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. I mean, you, you know, it's, you, you've got lots of adrenaline and testosterone and you wrestle the shark out and then you tag this amazing animal and then you take it back to the ocean and then you have the reward of watching it swim away. Oh, those were great times. <laughs> Um, their skin's made out of the same material as their teeth, isn't it? 
Yeah, so, so how do you wrestle a shark without getting well? You've got to be careful. I mean, there were, there were you, you try and keep the sensitive parts away from <laughs> from from shark skin, but they're called dermal denticles, and um, essentially it's it's very small little teeth along the length of the shark. And if you rub a shark one way, it's velvety smooth, but if you go the other way, it's like rubbing against you know sixty grit sandpaper. It's very very rough. And um, there's a, those dermal denticles allow a very hydrodynamic flow of water across their skin. So that's once again a, uh, an amazing bit of evolution that not only protects them, but also essentially allows them to move so effort, effortlessly through the water. So what's this extra special shark that you mentioned then? So in 1991, we were down at Musenberg Beach. And on that particular day, uh, the conditions were great for sharks. And we encircled, a, well, the fishermen encircled a shoal of fish. As the net was coming in, I saw there was a, a relatively large shark swimming in the shallows, trying not to get entangled in the net. And I suddenly realized it was a small great white. And I'll never forget the excitement at seeing this real live swimming great white right in front of me. And what made it different to the other sharks is the other sharks generally quite quickly got themselves entangled in the net or they'd swim to the back of the net. But this great white actively tried to avoid the net to the point where it was inevitable when the net was pretty much on the beach and then got entangled in the, the wing of the net. Being a small great white, it was only 1.58 meters. I remember it very well. Um, I was able to actually go and pick the shark up and cradle it and carry this great white across my arms to the beach. Where I then tagged it, shaking with excitement, took it back to the water. And I remember seeing there was an elderly gentleman swimming in the surf about 80 meters out to sea. I was busy shouting to him to get out the water, get out the water. And this gentleman turned around to me and said, that animal has far more to fear from my kind than I do from it. And it had a profound effect upon me, you know, mm. and this little shark had no interest in, obviously, it just gone through a traumatic experience of not only being caught in a net, then running aground and then having some crazy kid carry it to a beach and <laughs> slap something in its fin. Um, all it wanted to do was get back to the ocean. So that was a, a monumental experience for me and I took the information of the tagged shark to a group who had just started working with great whites in South Africa called the White Shark Research Institute. It was run by a gentleman called Theo Ferreira and Theo Ferreira was a notorious, previously had been a notorious great white shark hunter having killed 28 in False Bay and you know it was in the Jaws era but now mm -hmm. it turned over and become green and together with his son Craig had started the White Shark Research Institute. And when I walked in there and I was gushing with all this information, they said to me, well, would, would I like to volunteer for them and go, go out on a boat? And that's how my whole career began. So I spent four years with Craig and Theo, learning an immense amount from them. I mean, it was incredible, you know, sponging off what they had experienced with these sharks. And in those days, we were working at a place called Strace Bay and Dyer Island about two hours uh, east of Cape Town, and they were the pioneers. No one else was working with these animals. So when we would drive through a town with the, the shark cage on the back of our boat, people would come out there and kind of wave goodbye, <laughs> thinking, well, <laughs> these people are going to get chewed. But uh, it wasn't like that at all, and it was amazing. And then um, in around about uh, 1992, we worked with David Attenborough's team on a show called uh, Great White Shark. It was a wildlife on one special. And there was a guy at a place called the Farallon Islands of San Francisco, a chap called Scott Anderson, who threw a surfboard. Oh, yeah, off, he's the surfboard guy. Yeah, threw a surfboard off the rocks, 
and then he wound it in with a fishing reel and rod and reel. And while he was busy doing that, a shark came and lunged out the water to get the surfboard. And that gave me an idea to create a, a little seal-shaped decoy, which we did. And we tried it at Dyer Island of Khansby. And the sharks responded. They looked at it uh, because it was floating motionless on the surface. And they bumped it around and they occasionally bit it. But then I knew in False Bay, uh, which was you know very close to where we lived, and when we weren't working at Dyer Island, I used to you know, go out in our rubber inflatable boat here. I knew that there had to be sharks at Seal Island, although people didn't really see them there much during the, the winter months. I knew from having worked at Dyer Island for four years that it was pretty likely they were there. Were people just not paying attention or was it just it was not a place to swim that people weren't aware or people weren't fishing there? Cause... No, there were local, the local fishermen were there and they would occasionally see them. But more further down the coast, closer to, to the beaches, is mm -hmm. where the white sharks were more commonly seen in false bay, a place called Macassar. And that was where they used to hunt them. But around Seal Island, from working at Dyer Island, I knew that the sharks weren't actually at the island in the warm summer months, which everybody thought when the seals were pupping. Mm -hmm. We had learned at Dyer Island they were there in the winter months when the young seals go out to feed for themselves for the first time. So the sharks were targeting the seals the younger, weaker the younger, ones. After the the younger, came. more ex inexperienced animals. So by that stage, I'd saved up a, enough money. I used to dive out golf balls and collect fossil shark teeth and do whatever I can to, to get by. Uh, I bought an 11 foot long or three and a half meter long inflatable boat. And I had a small engine and I managed to convince a friend to come out to Seal Island with me, which lay five kilometers offshore, to go look for great white sharks. And why, uh, why were you doing this on your own? Why weren't you doing it with the White Shark Research Institute? Because they had been to Seal Island in the summer months and never found no, no, one. They're not there. There's no point. Yeah. Did they think you were mad then? No, not really. I mean, it was pioneering days. You know, okay. we were doing, we were all doing crazy things. It was wonderful. It was like walking, walking on the moon and looking at seeing what's around the next crater. That's sure. kind of what we were doing. And did you want to be a scientist at this point? Were you a scientist at this point? No, not at all. I was. Um, I just managed to scrape by at school. I'd just come out of the army and I wanted to work with animals. I didn't care how I worked with animals. I just wanted to work with animals. And because of my lack of academic success, there were limited opportunities for me. So mm -hmm. I had to kind of shape my own destiny, which I was okay. more than happy to do. So, so you've got a little dinghy and some mad friends. Yeah. So I've got my little inflatable boat. We head out to Seal Island. Did it have a name? No, boat? no, <laughs> it didn't have a name actually. And um, we get to Seal Island, and I've got a, a little yellow life jacket, the same size as a as a young seal. My friends wouldn't allow me to take bait with to attract the sharks, probably quite rightly. And so I decide I'm going to put this little life jacket out, the same size as a young seal. We're going to tow it behind the boat and see what happens. Not expecting there to be sharks there, really, but mm -hmm. hopeful because of our Dyer Island experiences. So my friends were pretty naive, fortunately. And um, we put this little life jacket out, and it wasn't even a minute before a small great white shark came literally flying out the water with this life jacket that we were towing in its mouth. And we all looked at this. I was beyond excited. Two of my friends were terrified out of their mind and mm -hmm. one other friend he was kind of sitting on the fence of excitement and fear and the shark bit the life jacket off and uh, we went and tightened the life jacket on again and we thought you know had we seen a, a once off was this a, a fluke would it, 
you know. And so we started towing the life jacket again. By this stage, two of my friends were determined they wanted to go back to shore. Sure. And my other mate, he was like, yeah, all right, let's give it a, another go. the worst go. that could happen. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was for sure. We were trying this again. So it was, a, it was a hung jerry. I've got the tiller of the boat. We're towing the life jacket. <laughs> and we towed it for about another 20 minutes, half an hour. And I was beginning to think, well, you know, it was once off. What a thing to see. And then a proper size great white, probably around 3.5, 3.8 meters so a 12 footer came flying out the water with a life jacket in its mouth. And that's when the penny dropped. We've discovered something pretty insane. And it's the only time in my life where the shark's ever been, I can honestly say it was bigger than the boat. Sure. And uh, yeah, by that stage, I was three to one against we going home, but the penny dropped. This is an amazing place. Were you a bit scared? No. No, I wasn't scared at all. I mean, are you a thrill seeker? Yeah, there's a part of me that obviously enjoys excitement and enjoys thrill, a thrill, and there's certainly an adrenaline value in a, in a lot of what I do. But it's countered by an incredible amount of respect, a huge amount of research that goes into working with these animals, and an inordinate amount of time in the field with them. So yes, I do get excited. And I do enjoy the thrill of, of being around these animals that are so more capable than me. Mm-hmm. But um, it's heavily tempered by a huge amount of respect and, 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 yeah, just time out there. So you kept this sighting a secret for some time or tried as best as you could. What were your worries? What were your hopes? And were you trying to sort of keep it a secret for you in some way or for the population of the sharks? Where do you go from there? Yeah, I mean, if you want to be with the animals, then you yeah, don't need exactly. to tell anyone. I mean, there's a, there's selfish reasons for most of the things we do, and I like to think that, and I can't remember the exact answer to that when I, this is you know 30 years ago now. Mm-hmm. But I would like to believe, knowing who I am now and who I was then, that I I wanted to keep it secret because I didn't want people harming these sharks. But I also was a, a young man in my early 20s that had pretty much no money and I knew by this stage working at Dyer Island it was four years on and the film crews were starting to come I knew there was a a, a entrepreneurial opportunity so just trying to temper both keeping it to yourself but making a few bucks on the side and I knew if we just went and told everybody about it my one mate who he, he essentially started everything with me he was one of the other three on board on that particular day we discovered it he and I you know had a long discussion about it and we both agreed that we need to keep this really quiet until we can afford a little bit more than a rubber boat and start doing things a little bit more professionally and that's exactly what we did so he used to sell pizzas I was selling my shark teeth and shells and golf balls and all sorts of nonsense that I could scrabble together and we eventually saved up enough money to buy a, an 18-foot-long fiberglass boat. Uh, we started chatting to local tourists that were here. So we didn't start advertising. We kept mm-hmm. it very low-key. And we kind of vet all our, <laughs> our potential guests. They were sworn to secrecy. You can have the best time of your life, but you don't <laughs> dare tell anybody. Anyone. So we started taking out you know, people on an irregular basis. And in those days, you know, we were making... Three, we're charging 300 rand a trip, which was equivalent of about 15 pounds. And it was a fortune to us. You know, suddenly I could afford to put petrol in the boat. And yeah, it just opened, opened all sorts of doors. So when did you start taking a camera with you? It was probably 
at least a few months after we bought our boat. I couldn't afford a boat and a camera. Yeah. But what I did do is once we started making money is I realized that what we were seeing was unique in the world. Yeah. So I saved up pretty much every cent I had and I bought the best possible camera and lens I could afford at the time, which was the EOS 3 with a 70-200 f2.8 lens back in those days. Great camera, great lens back then. You're and a Canon ambassador, right? I am, and I'm going to sell the product hard. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, I headed out to Seal Island, and I'd taken, with my, my dad's old cameras, I'd taken some pretty bad photos, but gave people an idea of, of what was happening in terms of when sure. we'd show people. But with a new camera, I took, like anybody else would have, pretty decent images. And what happened was, I can't remember exactly how it happened, but we took out a chap who was a videographer who came on the boat. We were trying to get a little bit of promotional footage for ourselves that we could show the selected people we wanted to take out. And the footage that he had shot, he went back to the States, got to National Geographic. And suddenly you had these two guys who, you know, didn't have two brass beans with National Geographic on the line, wanting to come out and do a documentary celebrating i think at that at that stage it was either 20 years of jaws or uh 50 25 years of jaws or something like that 20 years of jaws and in that film crew was peter benchley the writer of the book the writer of the book yeah there was david dubelay who was the most famous underwater photographer in the world mm -hmm. rodney fox the most famous shark attack victim rocky sure. strong the most famous shark scientist or we want to come out and see what we've just seen in this video. So we obviously knew that the cat was out the, the bag. I was taking these photographs and I thought, okay, well, let me leak it out in South Africa. Let me leak it out in the right way where I write the right story about it. Mm -hmm. So I got hold of the press because we knew National Geographic was coming. And I had one of the photos published in South Africa. And it went crazy. It was on the cover of every major newspaper. It was on all the billboards. This flying great white shark. Suddenly I had people getting hold of me telling me that I'd fabricated the thing. And it wasn't a great white. It was a killer whale because mm -hmm. it's black and white. And I was like, okay, well, the, mm -hmm. the crazies have come out of the woodwork now. And, um, yeah, that really opened my eyes to just what a big thing it was. And then so we did that first documentary. And that really opened the doors to every every major natural history documentary crew knocking our door down yeah. to try and come out and it seems that there is i mean whether it's blue planet or the air jaws series you've been involved with pretty every major great white shark documentary series since then it feels like at least yeah i'm sorry about that <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah it, it, it was an incredible journey for me and an amazing privilege to be able to have a career that allowed me to to spend time with those animals that are that my wife and I love so dearly, and also, you know, to be sitting alongside the best cinematographers, presenters, scientists, uh, naturalists in the world, and, and learning from them and being inspired by them. It it was just I can't even begin to to believe that it happened to me from from those days, you know, in a little rubber boat. So one of the things you wrote in your blogs recently was that from this is your December blog of last year, one of the year's loudest alarm bells for me is that for the first time in 31 years, I would not have seen or dived with the great white shark in South Africa. Where have they gone? As much as it's a love story, it's a, it's a tragedy as well. So 
1996, we discovered the famous flying great white sharks. And mm -hmm. around about the, the sightings remained pretty constant. One thing I did do from the very first day that we were out there being a naturalist is I wrote every single thing I saw down. I used to write down all the weather parameters. I used to keep very detailed data on all the sightings of the sharks, the size, sex of the animals, the predatory behavior, what size seal they're feeding on, where they're feeding on it, the outcome of the event, and a whole lot of other things. So we built up this amazing database. Do you still have all your original notes? Yeah, definitely. Cool. And what that allowed us to do is, instead of having jaded memories, over time, we were able to very accurately identify patterns. So for the first 15 years, the patterns were pretty consistent. You know, the sharks would return to Seal Island around about middle April, and they would leave end of August, early September. That was the pattern. But suddenly by the 20, early 20-teens, we started noticing a very significant downturn. Whereas you'd had anomalies before, the pattern became constant. The mm -hmm. numbers were dropping. Unfortunately, at the same time, there'd been a couple of shark attacks in False Bay, and everybody was mad about great whites, whether they loved them or hated them. Everyone is fascinated. So you had people sitting on mountains. You had people going in helicopters to see them. You now had more people in kayaks and surf skis. People were seeing more sharks. They thought the population was growing. But the more but people that are in the water, the, the percentage exactly. so of sightings were, goes up. They were seeing the same animals multiple yeah. times. But us who were out there every single day, we knew that numbers were dropping. At around about the same time, based on what we spoke about earlier about South Africa needing to create new jobs, we had a, a new fishery really starting to kick into gear called demersal shark longlining. Demersal shark longliners target smaller shark species. We catch those smaller shark species to export to Australia for flake, which is their fish and chips. Because Australia has quite strict shark fishing laws there, don't they? Australians are clever buggers. They maintain their populations very well and they regulate their fisheries extremely well. Uh -huh. And when they need to satisfy a surplus in demand... They come to South Africa. They come to South Africa. So we knew that the Great Whites were at Seal Island for, let's call it, end of April to September. That's five months of the year. For the remaining seven months of the year, they were inshore. And bear in mind, by this stage, we'd started a business, and it was our business to find sharks to mm -hmm. be able to show tourists. We knew where to find them. And the way we'd find them is target the areas where those smaller sharks were, because that's what the great whites move inshore to feed on. What people don't realize is that more than 60% of the great whites' diet for 75% of its life cycle is comprised of smaller sharks and fish, not seals and not mammalian prey. So these small sharks were vital to them. So all of a sudden, these small shark populations were being targeted in completely unregulated and unsustainable levels. Sure. And the great whites started changing their patterns in False Bay. So instead of being predominantly western in distribution, sorry, eastern in distribution within the bay, they started moving throughout the bay and they came into contact with people more often and there were actually more sure. shark attacks. And we were shouting, you know, from the trenches saying, hey, the, the problem's happening here, but essentially no, nobody right. wanted to listen. And that was really 2013, 2014, the numbers started dropping very quickly. 2015, 2016, the pattern continued and yeah. And am I right in saying you've also got um, shark nets in the water for, for swimming areas that there's a certain amount of bycatch in that as well? 
I think something like 11 to 60 a year get killed. Exactly, with an average of 33. So South Africa was the first place in the world to protect the Great White in 1991, but it's never been more than a paper law. Okay. And we've got the largest government sanctions killing machine of Great Whites on this planet, which is called the Natal Sharks Board. And as you correctly said, they kill between 11 and 60 Great Whites a year with an average of 33. They just go out with guns? or they No, go they, nets? they've got they, nets, okay. protect, bathe the protective nets. Now, we have less than one fatal shark attack along our South African coastline every year. We have 24,000 murders. I don't see any nets along our, around our cities or anything stopping humans, but we decide don't to wipe tempt them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've decided to wipe out great whites because they make one mistake a year. But anyhow, be that, be that as it may, what happened with this demersal shark longline fishery is it very effectively targeted these small sharks. The main prey of the great whites was disappearing. Mm-hmm. Where there's no prey, there's no predator. And then coupled to that, these demersal shark longliners, although the government won't admit it, and stay tuned, there's, there's going to be big news coming out soon. These demersal shark longliners were entangling large numbers of sharks. So if you take what the Natal Sharks Board was, was killing, what the demersal shark longliners were killing, the removal of their primary prey species, add in other fisheries bycatch, poaching, the population, which was... At and, that, the, and the famous orcas that only eat that, the livers, which is a at, wonderful story. Absolutely. It's a great and sexy story. But those orcas only came around about 2017, sure. long after the collapse began. So cumulatively, you're looking at about close to 100 white sharks that are being killed a year of a population that at worst, if you look mm-hmm. at Sarah Andriotti's study, was around about 330 to 500 animals. That was it. If you look at Alison Towner's study, you're looking at around about a thousand animals. If Alison's number is correct, because let's say that's a nicer number that you hope for, sure. you're losing a tenth of that population every single year. No population of slow breeding animals can ever sustain that in a million years. And sadly, by 2018, I took the last truly beautiful photograph of the flying great white sharks and we haven't seen them since. Do you always link your photography to environmentalist agendas? For example, you've been photographing the last great tuskers, um, so the African elephants who've got tusks that touch the ground. There's not many of them left anymore. Obviously, you're going for tiger sharks. Their population are going is going down as, again as well. Can you remove your work as a photographer from your passion as a naturalist? No, I think they go hand in hand, and they need to because... I've, my entire life and all the privileges I've had have been given and gifted to me by the sharks and the animals I've worked with. Mm-hmm. By virtue of that, I've spent an inordinate amount of time at the coalface. And if I'm not going to stand up for them and speak up for them, who is? You know, yes, there are a lot of other dedicated people, but I want to be, and so does my wife, we want to be people that give back. So... My photography is an extension of that. You know, I, f- I focus primarily on iconic subjects. That's, that's what I do. I focus on the great tuskers. I focus on black maned lions. I focus on the real big whales, the humpbacks, great white sharks, wandering albatross, all these iconic creatures because people relate to them. But by the virtue of that, people need to be made aware that even these greatest icons that you'd think be afforded the most protection of any species are under tremendous pressure. So I do like to bring that to the fore in as artistically and aesthetically pleasing way as I can, that 
if somebody hangs one of these prints in their home, they're inspired to hopefully be a voice to help conserve them, see these animals for themselves, and yeah, you know, try to do what they can. But equally, as much of our life has been cut badly by the double-edged sword in terms of seeing the changes that are happening through climate change and, and at direct hands of humans, we've also seen where humans have had a positive impact. You know, in the 60s, there were moratoriums placed on the killing of the great whales on our planet. And when I first started working with great whites, we hardly ever saw a humpback. Now, in the recent years, because of the protection that was afforded to them by progressive governments and dedicated, brave individuals, we're starting to see supergroups of up to 200 humpback whales in the size of two or three football pitches. So there are stories of hope. You know, in northern Zimbabwe, there's a group called the Zambezi Elephant Fund uh, that works together with an another group called Bush Life. And they've done an inordinate amount to stop elephant poaching in that area. In 2015, we, we used to go visit Mana Pools on a regular basis in, on the, in the low Zambezi Valley in northern Zimbabwe. They were losing something like four elephants a month through these dedicated individuals, by 2019, they weren't losing a single elephant a year. And there's similar stories, you know, in East Africa, like Amboseli, they hardly have any animals, being, elephants being poached anymore. And there are lots of stories like this if you're out there looking for them. So I try and balance my, my fine artwork by, yes, hey, there's bad stuff happening out there. You need to be aware of it. There's a tidal wave of change coming. Climate change, for anybody who says it's not real, they say a photograph's worth a thousand words. I tell you what, some of the photographs I could show you are worth a hundred thousand words. And it's not just at the poles, it's at some of the warmest places, it's on the equator, it's happening everywhere. But there are there are great examples of hope out there that we can make a difference if we if we act. There are three questions that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. The first question is if you could go for a walk or a swim anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? The walk would be on St. Andrew's Beach, South Georgia, because I've never seen such a multitude of animals that harks back in our history to what the planet used to be like. And, what kind of animals? Uh, half a million king penguins, uh, half a million breeding pairs of king penguins, tens of thousands of uh, southern elephant seals, which is the largest pinniped on earth. Mm -hmm. The beach itself is adorned by... Uh, hanging glaciers and on the cone of, of the beach itself you've got the most magnificent seabirds like light-mantled sooty albatross looking down onto the beach so yeah it's a pretty special place if you want to go for a walk okay. dress warmly <laughs> I, I was on an island full of a, an elephant seal colony and I can honestly say I've never smelt anything quite so rancid <laughs> as elephant seals in my entire life. Yeah, they, they, their toilet facilities are probably not up to scratch. <laughs> um, second question, who is your natural history hero? You know, I'm going to answer that with, with two. Obviously, David Attenborough. We all grew up with Attenborough, right? And he's been... Did you have much to do with him when he came out to shoot? No, I was, I was young. Okay. You know, I was, I, was, uh, I was in the background, but yeah, pretty special to you know, worked on that project with him. And then he narrated many of the shows we were involved sure. in over the years. So Attenborough obviously has been on our TV screens forever. And yeah, amazingly inspiring, articulate and passionate individual that now is a champion for change. But then I'd have to say they've been my real natural history heroes are so many of the unsung rangers, 
guides, anti-poaching individuals in Africa because they're never in the limelight. They're at the front lines of risk. They get paid zilch and they are making unbelievable changes to protecting ecosystems. And to all those unsung heroes, I can't ever thank them enough. So those are my real heroes. Final question. If you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? This is one that's purely selfishly motivated for me, and mm -hmm. that would be to see the megalodon shark. I wondered if you were going to see the <laughs> megalodon. I mean, who wouldn't want to see a 15-meter-long great white shark, right? Uh -huh. To see a creature like that would be absolutely extraordinary. Um, but locally, you know, very close to where we live in the, in the Southern Cape, near the southern tip of Africa, uh, we had a, a creature there called a, a bluebuck. And this was an extraordinarily beautiful animal. It looked a little bit like a, a sable antelope. And that animal became extinct in the late 1800s. And I hunted by colonial hunters and, and trophy hunters to the point of extinction. So that would be an animal. But um, yeah, uh, another, another one that I'd, now that you've got me thinking, I'd, I would love to see a woolly mammoth. You know, can you imagine a shaggy elephant with tusks that, that uh, look like noodles? Fantastic. I mean, I've been asking that question for four years now, and I think mammoth is increasingly the thing that I would go for, even above a T-Rex. <laughs> I can sort of imagine the awe of seeing a mammoth in the way that I think I'd just be terrified if I saw a T-Rex. But probably like a great white shark, they wouldn't see me as a threat and just Yeah, walk by. absolutely. They're probably chasing after some other little dinosaur that attracts their attention. But yeah, uh, megalodon would be... Pretty outrageous. I mean, a predatory fish that's 15 meters long, I think that's hard to beat. What would they have eaten, though? I they mean... would have eaten, probably eaten small cetaceans, so small whales and dolphins, probably would have eaten other sharks. But uh, primarily, I, I guess, with their dental capabilities and their size, they could easily polish off you know, a whale that's five, six meters long, mm -hmm. seven meters long. So things like pilot whales, false killer whales, certainly large dolphins would have taken quite some beating to see a, a hunt between a, a megalodon and you know a pod of a thousand pilot whales trying to get away from them. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you. It's been lovely chatting. A megalodonically sized thank you to Chris and indeed to his wife Monique for setting up that interview and also for getting me in the water with some bronze whaler sharks off the Cape the week beforehand. Both interview and diving experiences were truly something. Thank you to you both. If you find yourself down on the Cape and want to go swimming with some large sharks, although sadly, as you've heard, it's unlikely to be great white ones, then you can find Chris and his team at Apex Predators down in Simonstown. And for full details on everything covered today and links to Chris's and Apex's websites, you can head to treesacrowd.fm, where you will also be able to find information on what Chris and Monique have planned for the Lower Potterberg Nature Reserve. For if what you've heard today is what Chris has already done, then Lower Potterberg represents what he's going to do next. We'll remain in Cape Town for next month's episode for something completely different. But until then, look after yourselves. And bye-bye for now. Bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Mm.